You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Marcian Ted Hoff, who's a legend in Silicon Valley. We go through his career from Intel to Atari, well, even back when, before the age of 18, he already was awarded his first patent. And we see the journey of one man through the decades of Silicon Valley's growth. We talk about how do you see the value of IP? What should investors be thinking when they are studying a company's IP? What was it like being one of the inventors of the microprocessor? How did Intel grow after the invention of the 444? And how has innovation in Silicon Valley changed over the decades? And what technology lies ahead that's of interest? This and much more in this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin this week's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I want to welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Ted, quick question. Why Ted? Well, how'd you get that name? <laughs> well, my father, I'm named after my father, it's Junior, and he was called Mars, and they didn't want to call me that. There were about three or four Ed Hoffs. My middle name is Edward. So they came up with the same solution, I guess, that they did in the Kennedy family. They had an Edward Kennedy and named him Ted, and I got the name Ted from my middle name, Edward. <laughs> Just for the audience, one of my two middle names is Edward, so I feel the connection there. <laughs> Ted, can you give us a, I mean, yes, your career spans many decades, but just for audience, can you give us a little background of your career before we really start diving into each question? Yes. Well, I got interested in science at a very young age, about nine years old. I have an uncle, about 12 years older than I am, my father's younger brother, who was in the Navy in World War II and came back to become a chemical engineer. I grew up outside of Rochester, New York, and he was going to the University of Rochester. When he found out I was interested in chemistry, he started giving me his chemistry books when he was through with them. And so about that age, I was reading high school and college-level chemistry books. Then he gave me a subscription to Popular Science Magazine when I was just about 12 years old. Saw an ad for an Allied radio catalog. Set away for it started getting interested in electronics. And then my parents, seeing that, ordered from Allied a shortwave radio kit, which my father helped me put together. And before long, I was listening to the BBC and even Radio Moscow propaganda broadcasts in English. So that was quite an experience. About that time, television was coming to Rochester. I saw an ad in Popular Science for a cathode ray tube, five inch, sent away for it and built myself a crude oscilloscope and before long was doing a bit of TV repair. My father worked at General Over Signal Company. And he, he was not in electronics, but he knew the head of the electronics department there. And he mentioned to him that he had a son interested in electronics. This was about the time I was graduating high school. He asked if I could come in and talk to him. Sure. And in that discussion, he said, how'd you like a summer job? So before long, I was having a summer job at General Railway Signal Company in Rochester, New York. 
Now, at that time, electronics meant vacuum tubes. The junction transistor was maybe three years old, and they were working with transistors. So I got to work with transistors at a very young age, which I think was a tremendous benefit because it, it gave me like a ground floor into what later would be an important part of my career. So again, there are some of these things that happen. The second summer I was there, I was assigned to work with two engineers on a rather novel track circuit. In the course of that summer, trying to be helpful, I saw a couple of ways I thought we could maybe make this uh, track circuit work a little better, and I made those suggestions. I'm getting ready to go back to school. And by the way, my science teacher in high school had been a graduate of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. One of the officers of the company where my father worked was offering a scholarship to RPI. He was connected with the board of directors, and I won that scholarship. So that enabled me to go to school. So my second summer, I'm getting ready to go back to school. One of the engineers comes to me and says, we've got some paperwork for you to fill out. It seems that they liked those suggestions I made, and they were naming me co-inventor on their patent application. And the patent issued, and I have a copy of it, the filing date was a few weeks before I turned 18. So that let me know, I think I'm in the right area, <laughs> in other words. And in fact, choosing electronics over chemistry was helped by my uncle. He said, jobs in chemistry are not that great unless you're a chemical engineer. And I wasn't as attracted to chemical engineering as I was to the chemistry itself. So I chose electronics. Again, a great, great choice as I look at it. And the other thing is that experience um, with that summer job ended up being useful at many other times in my life. And in fact, at Rensselaer as a senior, you could do a thesis and if you could get a faculty member. A thesis is a, you know, is a senior and not a graduate student. And I found a faculty member, and one of the things my thesis was on was things that I had observed in the behavior of the transistors I was working with on that summer job. And it turned out the uh, thesis um, turned out to be pretty well. They had awards at their graduation ceremony, and I won enough money to buy myself a better oscilloscope. <laughs> so. So the other thing is, as a senior, you could apply for a National Science Foundation fellowship. And I had never been west of Niagara Falls, so why not California? And so I actually applied to both Caltech and Stanford and was accepted to both, but I figured, let me try a university over an engineering school. And I never regretted that choice. I mean, I love Stanford. And it worked out so well for me. And here again, as a graduate student, eventually I've got to do a PhD thesis. And I drew back on that experience from the summer job. The idea was, could we track railroad cars from the serial numbers on them, build basically a camera system that looks at the railroad car when it's rolling by and read the serial numbers and report to the railroad where their cars are? Railroads had a terrible time knowing where all their possessions were because the cars are all over the country. 
And the head of the department at Stanford said, boy, have I got the guy for you. They had just added a faculty member to the staff, Bernie Woodrow, and his specialty was pattern recognition. So I became his first graduate student. And in the course of that work, I did some work with computers and with magnetic memory and the like. And I stayed on as a postdoc graduate student. And then one day I got a phone call. The caller introduced himself, Bob Noyce. And right away I knew who he was. I'd met him once before. At Stanford, we used to put on a demo of speech recognition. And I was told we'd have some important visitors one day. And we put on a speech recognition demo form that included Fred Terman, uh, considered the father of Silicon Valley, David Packard of Hewlett Packard, Bob Noyce, and Sherman Fairchild himself. So some very important visitors. And in the phone call, Bob asked if I'd be interested in considering a position in a new company. And I said, yes. And they didn't even have a place to meet yet, but I interviewed at Bob Noyce's home. And he hadn't told me what the company was about. For our audience, who is Bob Noyce? And Bob Noyce, I knew him as the head of Fairchild Semiconductor. But now he's founding a new company with another gentleman from Fairchild named Gordon Moore. And these are two very famous people in the Valley. But anyway, in the interview, Bob asked me, what did I think the next big area and integrated circus was? And I had used my time at Stanford to try to keep track of what was going on in the local industry. And when I think of it, I came to California at the very perfect time, 1958. Fairchild Semiconductor had started just a year before that. So this was an ideal time. And integrated circuits were expanding. People probably have heard the term Moore's Law, but it was around mid-60s when Gordon published an article pointing out that the capability of integrated circuits was doubling on an every year or two basis. So, And when Bob asked his question, I said, memory. And the reason is, and up until that point, memory for a computer meant magnetic core memory. And for those who have video, this is what the memory plane looked like. This is a string of little tiny donut-shaped pieces of magnetic material strung on wires. But this isn't the whole memory. Around this are hundreds of drivers driving signals that are almost incompatible with the other kinds of signals in a computer. So it's a really tricky thing to interface. And the idea of doing semiconductor memory where it would be compatible with the other circuitry seemed like a natural. And I think probably that helped me get the job. (laughs) For everyone listening to the podcast, we will have video for this. Check it out on YouTube and our other social media channels. You have to see the video and the pictures of what was just held up. And remember, all these names that are, are being said right now, you can look them up on the internet. Moore's Law. We just said that Bob Noy, all these founders of Intel, kings of Silicon Valley, more than, more than anything else. But Ted, please continue. Okay. Intel was started to do memory. And one of the great experiences at Intel, I'd been in the world of academia at Stanford for about 10 years at this time, and probably had come away with a bit of negative view of marketing. But... They said, I should travel with the marketing people. 
and meet potential future customers. And that was a great experience, learning to see the world through the eyes of a customer. And I, I think it was a great lesson. And I hopefully lost all my bias against marketing in that process. But from that, we learned computer companies are pretty conservative. And it might be a while before they're really going to start becoming major buyers of semiconductor memory and give up their magnetic cores. So what do we do in the meantime? And the suggestion was, let's do custom chips for certain customers. The first one they found was a Japanese company that sold calculators under the name Busycom. And in April of 1969, now Intel started September of 68, so we're not yet a year old. In April of 69, Several of the managers of the calculator company came to California, and I sat in on the meetings, although I didn't have much to say about it, but Intel agreed they would do LSI for their calculators. And LSI means large-scale integrated circuits, because we were developing two new processes, and one of them, an MOS process, looked like it should be much better than the quality available in that technology had been. And so there was some new steps called Silicon Gate. So anyway, about two months after that meeting in, in June of 1969, three engineers arrived from Japan to bring their design. And that's the first we know what it is they expect. And I was assigned to be liaison. There was no design responsibility, just help them find out who they should be talking to within the company. And if they have a question, come to me, and then I try to get an answer by you know, searching around inside the company. Well, I'm curious about what they're doing. And it seems that it looks very complicated. And by this time, I've learned enough about Intel's design capabilities and so on to have some real concern. Who's going to design these? I'm not, I wasn't a chip designer. And, um, and they only had about two people that were capable of doing MOS, and they were committed to memory products. And it, it looked to me like there were going to be a dozen chips that were going to be really quite complicated to lay out. So I took my concerns to Bob Noyce, who at that time I reported to. And he said, if you've got any ideas for simplifying this, uh, you know, project, why don't you pursue them? Well, I'd been working with computers at Stanford for quite a while. In other words, I had first programmed an IBM 1620 and then an IBM 1130. And even in that, there was one project I never got to finish, but I think it gives an idea. I had actually interfaced a television camera to the IBM 1130 so that we could actually read pictures into the computer. Now, what we didn't get to do, which I'd hoped to do, was to actually read sheet music, interpret it, and then play the music back through a synthesizer hooked up to the computer. <laughs> that would have been a great project, but I never got to finish it because Intel came along and I left Stanford and went to Intel. <laughs> this was all back in? In the, in the late 60s, in the 66, 67 time frame. <laughs> Keep going. This is incredible. <laughs> So anyway, 
I start looking at what these calculators need. Now, they're doing mostly binary coded decimal arithmetic, which is a little messy to build adders, but all you need is an adder. Everything else you do <laughs> pretty much otherwise. And then it occurred to me, if you have a binary adder and you add two binary coded decimal digits, you end up with a valid binary result. It's just not a valid binary coded decimal result. But it's pretty easy. A very simple bit of logic will convert it back to the binary coded decimal. So now I realize if I build a computer the right way, I can build a simple binary computer and put this one extra step in and make be able to do either binary or binary coded decimal arithmetic. And the binary coded decimal arithmetic is more useful in calculators, but maybe not as useful in other potential applications. There were so many different chips in the uh, calculator family as proposed, mostly interfacing to different pieces of equipment, like the display that the calculator is going to run, a printer that the calculator is going to output you know, onto paper, the keyboard. And people may not realize it, but when you press a key on the typical keyboard, that key may bounce. Now, it may make a contact, bounce off, and then make another contact. So it might look like two or three hits that all take place maybe in a thousandth of a second or so. Now, you know that no human being can put their finger down and pick it up and put it back down again two or three times in a thousandth of a second. So what you do is you check to make sure that the contact has been there for longer than a certain time. And they had a whole chip designed just to do that operation. And I said, wait a minute. I can do that with a program. Instead of having a special chip that has all this fancy layout, I'll put all that fancy stuff into a read-only memory for the program. And one of the things they had in the proposed calculator family was a read-only memory. But their read-only memory was mostly like pushing keys on an ordinary calculator. In other words, like floating point ads. And it said, rather than do that, let's develop, in fact, I decided to put it, what's called subroutine capability. In other words, where you can actually have an instruction that jumps to another place and then come back to where you left off. And I don't know to, to go into details, but the idea is you start to make chunks of program behave like those chips. And instead of having every one of those chips separately laid out, the programmer just writes the steps out to be executed. So a whole idea begins to take place. Let's build a real... Oh, and here's another thing that was happening. The calculator family was going to use what's called shift register memory. They are slow and they are difficult to interface to because the data is basically circulating and you have to watch the data as it goes by and then pick off what you want at just the right time. Intel had just started to do dynamic RAM. Now, the shift register needed six transistors for each bit of memory. The dynamic RAM used only three. And the shift register was slow and complicated. The dynamic RAM was fast and simple. So let's get rid of the shift registers and let's go to dynamic RAM. Now, that meant 
the instructions could execute far faster than they had before because you don't have to wait for the shift register to do its thing. And so, again, the idea of a simple calculator. So, those ideas were pretty much developed in the June and July and August timeframe of 1969. And then I was allowed to hire another person added to my group, Stan Mazer. And by the middle of September, we had put together a good enough target spec that our marketing department sent it off to Japan. And they actually sent off essentially two choices. They could pursue the design that their engineers had proposed, or they could consider the Intel approach, which was quite different. Well, we ended up having a meeting back in California where the engineering management came, or the management of the calculator company came, and their engineering team presented their approach, and Stan and I presented our approach. And lo and behold, Japanese management said, we like the Intel approach. So at that point, we were committed to go ahead with the microprocessor. And that, that was really what helped launch what ultimately became the 4004. I love that story because you thought out of the box, you saw a situation, you saw how to improve it, a whole new way of doing it. There's just so many entrepreneur pieces there of this is a problem. Let's pick a different route to solve it. Let's think creative. Let's come together. There's every component there of a, of a great story. Tell, okay, so create the processor, continue. Well, and then another situation came up. We were approached about the end of 1969 by a company in Texas that was building, <coughs> one of the terms they use is a glass teletype. But the idea was a cathode ray tube terminal that behaved sort of like a teletype where it had a keyboard on it, and you could put data into it, and the data would be displayed on the cathode ray tube. And they had a processor in it, and the original approach they had was the processor needed registers. Could we make a chip to do the registers? Their main contact was Stan Mason. And Stan brings the information to me, and we both look at it, and we say, you know, their processor and its instruction set isn't much more complicated than what we've just defined for the calculator family. So through Stan, we counter-proposed, don't just build that memory chip. We'll do your whole processor as one chip. And uh, the contact was a fellow named Victor Poor, and Stan likes to say Victor nearly fell off his chair <laughs> when he heard the proposal, but that was accepted. And that one also had the, we were given the option, if we wanted to sell it to other people, we could do so. Now, in the case of the family for the calculators, the contract was written, allowed us to sell it to other people with certain restrictions. And uh, one was not for other calculator companies. So anyway, that was a possibility that had to be, you know, or could be tested. So, so that, it was about probably January, February of 1970, where we had a target spec 
for what would ultimately become the 8008. It was kind of interesting that initially it had the number, I think it was 1201 assigned to it. But when we came out with the 4004, a four-bit processor, <laughs> and then we were coming out with an eight-bit processor, I think it was marketing, said, it's got to be called the 8008, <laughs> in other words, to make it compatible. And so now we had two microprocessors. And the feedback that we got from the 8008 helped us in defining the next generation of processors. And I think that tendency tended to continue that each generation of processor would, people would try out applying it. And then they'd say, gee, if it only had this or that, it would be even easier for me to use. And that feedback was very useful to the engineering teams that were helping to divine the next generation of processor. Now, my position at Intel wasn't the design side. My title originally had been manager of applications research. And that supposedly meant that when we had products, I would help customers use them. And I should also learn to help define what the next generation of products might be. And so as we were making decisions about whether to announce the 4004 as a family, we spent a lot of time, possibly Stan and myself, writing manuals and so on that would teach people how to use the part, to make it as useful as possible so that we wouldn't have to be sending people out into the field, but they'd be able to read the manual and figure out how to use the thing. And I think that that probably helped a lot because it turned out the product ended up being pretty successful. And we, you know, just recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of that first announcement. But actually, even to get the announcement, was pretty tricky because it took a change in Intel's marketing. A new director of marketing arrived in the summer of 1971. Now, we had working parts for the 4-bit family, the calculator family, within the first few months of 1971. And we had the rights to sell it to other people as long as they weren't calculators. But getting marketing to do that, and it, it took a change. And I think the fellow who came in, Ed Gelbach, had been at Texas Instruments. And he probably knew that if Intel didn't go into this game, probably Texas Instruments was going to do it before long. So he probably more than anything helped get the product announced. And in, in November of 1971, I think we put out a really remarkable ad that was titled, Announcing a New Era in Integrated Electronics. <laughs> so, in other words, quite predictable. So, that, that launched a, uh, like a whole new industry. But around 1975, Bob Noyes came to me and said, he'd like me to look at a new area. Is there something we could do in the telephone industry? And so I started looking at that, 
And within a few years, I believe we had produced, we finally chose a product, a device called the codec. This is a device that converts signals from the analog world to the digital world and the digital world back to the analog world. It laid the groundwork for digital telephony. And we believe, I believe we had the first monolithic codec produced. And that was in a, it was announced at least in a, um, I have a copy of it, February 1978 Solid State Circuits Conference. We presented our codec design. <laughs> and we designed it in a way that made it possible for it to be used in like switching systems. So you could actually use it as the, Basis for digital switches. And we figured we need a few other signals. And so we did an early digital signal processing chip. So, in effect, that laid that grounder. The area became so successful for Intel, and Intel had a rule they didn't want to expand in Silicon Valley. They moved the whole group to Arizona. <laughs> And I didn't want to leave California. I happen to like California. I mean, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I fell in love with California, especially the climate out here. So I started another group in the area of speech recognition, back, bringing back those memories from the early days of, um, of Stanford. But Intel's focus was mostly on the design of the chips to go into computers. And IBM had come out with its personal computer. Apple was in business. And so one of the things, I was probably more interested in applications, and I was approached by a recruiter from Atari. From Atari, the now, game station. Atari had been in video games, but was starting to look at the field of computers in the home. What can we use computers for? And they had some very interesting things. They, they had a picture-transmitting telephone. They had something like what you call the Fitbit, in other words, but health monitors that a person could wear, in other words, like for jogging or something, and watch your pulse and breathing rate and all the rest. So they were looking for novel ways to use computers but what they didn't have, and Intel did, was someone of the class of Andy Grove. Now, we've you've probably heard me mention Bob Noyce, Gordon Moore. They both at times headed the company. But one who probably had the biggest influence was a fellow named Andy Grove, who had come from Hungary. and was one of the most amazing people I think I've met because he had such a mind for detail and was so organized. He was one who essentially seemed to know everything that was going on in the company and made sure that everybody who was responsible for some aspect of it knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing and kept them focused on it. That degree of how would you say, focus and direction was almost lacking at Atari. In other words, it was very disorganized. 
There was a lot of duplication of effort and so on. And he made things efficient. <laughs> so that, that was an aspect. And Atari, when I joined them, was owned by Warner Communications. And it started to have financial difficulties. One, the existing product line they had of games was starting to saturate its market. And there was a movie out at the time, E.T., by S Steven Spielberg, which was a great success. And Atari, I think, if anything, rushed a, a game to the market based on E.T. Now, Atari had procedures in place to evaluate the quality of a game. They would get together teams of typically teenage boys and have them play the game and, and rate it. And the ratings were almost universal. It either needed more work or it wasn't very good. But instead of paying attention to that, Atari went ahead and made a large number of these games, many of which I believe ended up in landfills. And that, again, is a message, probably for startup companies. If you have a procedure in place, there's probably a reason for it, and you should pay attention to that reason. <laughs> so, so that, I think, was a... So finally, I think Warner lost patience. It sold Atari. And at that point, I could either go with a new company or go independent, and I decided to go independent. But one of the people I had worked with at Atari, and he had been in charge of Atari's chip design, because Atari would design chips and then send them out to foundries to be manufactured. And his name was Gary Summers. He decided to start a company working with attorneys in patent litigation and offering technical assistance and testimony. And so I ended up testifying in patent trials. And one of the things, again, that I learned from that, I look back in the years when I was inventing myself, whether before Stanford, at Stanford, or at Intel, the ability to communicate with a patent attorney was often strained, you might say. The other thing that I learned in litigation, though, is that the patent attorneys who write the patents and the patent attorneys who litigate the patents are in different wavelengths. And sometimes the decisions made to get a patent may almost destroy its value in the courtroom. Please go into more detail with that. Well, and this is one of the concerns I have actually about our patent system. Suppose I'm a testifying expert at a trial. This is typically some really subtle technical stuff. And I'm given a half an hour maybe to explain those technical fine points to a jury that has been selected for having no technical skills whatsoever. So it is, almost becomes more of a, you might say, a personality contest than a technical contest. And, it strike, and in some cases, decisions involving many millions of dollars will be made by that jury. 
So it is it is something to be considered. But the other thing is, when writing a patent, think about the courtroom where it's going to be explained. In other words, it's going to have to stand up. That typically isn't done when the patent's being written. <laughs> are there any, because in Silicon Valley, there are patent portfolio experts that design a patent wheel around a patent or a product. Do they have any court experience in general? That's, that's a good question. I, I, don't, you know, I don't have an evaluation of all the different... But too often, it seems like some organizations specialize in working with the patent office to get the patent issued, and others are primarily litigants, and they're the ones filing lawsuits and the like. And so that was one of the, in fact, if I give maybe one example, the patent was written, it had to do with being able to digitize television. Now, television has a certain bandwidth, you know, video image. So there is a sample rate in digital systems that has to be of a certain amount or you won't be able to process it properly digitally. Now, the patent could have been written to say a sample rate of at least this number. But instead, in the claim, they put a sample rate of this number, the lowest value that would work. And a judge says, okay, I'll give you plus or minus 10% around that number. I think the number was 100 megahertz. So he says, if somebody is doing something between 90 and 110 megahertz, we'll say it infringes the patent. But all they had to do was go to 120 megahertz, and now they were, could ignore the patent. And you see, that's the kind of thing, I mean, in the courtroom, it looks very different than getting it issued by the patent office. Uh. <laughs> Please continue. So how long were you helping or consulting with patents? Roughly 20 years, I believe. Um, one, and here was another issue that played a factor in that. I don't know if they are still there, but there are two cities in Texas. One of them, I believe, is Marshall. I don't remember the name of the other one. Declared themselves, I think, to be friends of the patent holder. And the idea is, in their courts, no patent will ever be found invalid, and it will always be found infringed, <laughs> regardless of the merits of the case. So lots of cases would try to get themselves into what was called the Eastern District of Texas. And as a potential expert witness, you've got to allow that you're going to have to go there for maybe two, three, four weeks while the trial is on. So you set all that time off on your schedule. And then a couple of days before it's to go to trial, the attorneys settle because they don't want to go through that process and maybe lose big. So they work out the details. And you as the expert sit there with all this time left over and you can't book the time. So it's, it's like you're retired without <laughs> any benefits. So anyway, that, that's probably one of the things that turned me into retirement, although I was 
of age too. <laughs> so. Oh, I would have hoped you had taken a three-week vacation. <laughs> now, I'm not sure how much stuff there would have been to do in that area, yeah. but <laughs> but it it is it is an interesting area, and I wonder if I wonder if over time there there may be changes. One of the cases that I was potentially on, but it, it never went through, was actually to be heard in England. And there, their patent system is apparently quite different. Hearings are not done before a jury, but at least I was told they were done before a panel of judges who are highly technically trained and who have studied the case. And the, the hearing itself is really getting down to, you might say, nitpicking details where those panel judges will ask the, the testifying experts questions. If that panel system was implemented here in Silicon Valley, how different do you think things would be here? I mean, we always hear about Apple, Samsung, all these groups suing each other all the time. If there was the court system where it wasn't peers, it wasn't people that have the time to be on juries, yeah. instead they're all technical experts, how could that change Silicon well, Valley? Let me give you one other example. I think I can do this without revealing any um, sensitive information. One of the cases in which I testified, we won the case, except the jury found that one claim was infringed by the accused product. But the claim they found infringed was what's called a dependent claim. It reads, the invention as in claim A, <laughs> in other words, with the following differences. And the jury found the independent claim to which it referred not infringed. And that is an impossibility. You see, because of all of the Situations in the dependent claim are present. The dependent claim includes the independent claim, so they must be all present in the independent claim. So the independent claim has to be infringed. So the judge ended up throwing out the, the, the decision. And in fact, it was back to square one to see whether people want to go through all that business of hiring attorneys and experts and everything else to go through another trial. And, and that's partly because, you see, the jurors are not trained in patent law or technology. How important is, are those patents in the eyes of investors when, I mean, a lot of our audience is entrepreneurs, VCs, founders of companies here in Silicon Valley. What should they be thinking about in their patent strategy? It's, you know, I'm probably biased in this area. My view has tended to be that patents are probably more about the egos of the inventors. And maybe to have a few patents in the portfolio makes the company look better. But how useful they really are is, is a big question. And taking it to the courts strikes me as, as being risky in other words and in fact the the numbers may be different today than they were but they used to say to get a patent figure is going to cost you $20,000 to assert a patent start with a million 
Wow. <laughs> so with that, through your time, through the decades, how has innovation changed over this time? Well, a couple of the things that have happened. One of the things, and I don't know how fully it's appreciated, but I mentioned before when I interviewed with Bob Noyce about semiconductor memory and how Intel was starting up in this area. I have a copy of a magazine from January of 1970 in which I co-authored an article predicting we'd have the cost of memory below a penny a bit within two years. Now, try to put this in perspective. A typical typewritten page, maybe three or 4,000 characters. In terms of memory, that's three or 4,000 bytes. Let's say 30,000 bits. That would be $300 worth of memory for one typewritten page for semiconductor memory. What's paper and ink worth? Maybe a penny, a sheet. So there's a 30,000 to one ratio. Well, it's about that same ratio today, but it's the other way around. It's maybe 30,000 times more expensive to have that data on paper than it is to have it in semiconductor memory. And in fact, I have something I showed on the camera, a little flash drive. This is 256 gigabytes of storage purchased at Walmart for less than $11. That represents something in the neighborhood of 2 billion bits for every penny spent. So that's a roughly 2 billion to 1 reduction in the cost of memory from, let's say, the 1972 time frame. That's 50 years to, <laughs> to this day. So that is due to innovation in the semiconductor industry. Through this interview, it was mentioned some of the technology that was being worked on in the 70s, 60s. You'd mentioned possibly taking a camera and videotaping sheet music and have a synthesizer play it. What are some of the technologies that have been developed years back that maybe are just now starting to be implemented? It's things that we think are brand new technologies, but it really have been developed for years. Well, there are many areas of technology. In fact, I think one of the things that I would hope more people would be looking at are the impact of the human race on the planet on which we live. And in fact, in 1997, at an event in Japan, I got to give a brief talk, and I pointed out that we were nearing the end of a millennium. Years that start with 19, <laughs> start with a one, and going to years that start with a two. But in the last century of the last millennium, the Earth's population increased by roughly a factor of four. Should we continue that population growth for the next millennium? How much land, assuming we have the same amount of land on Earth that we have now, 
how much land would there be for each human being? And the answer is no more than the area of the soles of a human's foot. So obviously, population growth cannot continue like that for a thousand years. And one of the issues will be what will limit it, intelligence or disaster? <laughs> and, and that is one of the things I think that we have to consider we are facing if we don't start using more intelligence toward what the humans are doing to the planet. And so, but there are so many areas where technology can help. And you mentioned, like, one of the things we just came through, or maybe we're not even through it yet, this COVID pandemic. But think about how many viruses we have for which we have developed vaccines and for which we can sample human you know, blood to determine antibodies. Aren't we at a point where we could do computer modeling of a virus and figure out exactly, once you've mapped the virus, exactly the optimal vaccine for it? In other words, this is one of the things where computer modeling would seem to me. And, and it's one of an area that is of special interest to me because when I first joined Intel, I was told that when it came to the MOS circuits, they couldn't build them in what we call breadboards. You couldn't take just a bunch of MOS transistors and wire them together with wire and solder and have it look anything like the final circuit. MOS, just for and MOS means metal oxide silicon. It's a form of integrated circuit. We probably don't know, have to go into the details. But what I did was I wrote a simulator to simulate the behavior. And then every time an engineer used the simulator and designed a circuit with it, once we had the circuits, we could measure them. And measuring those circuits and then say, how close did the actual circuit come to what that model predicted? And we'd keep making the model better and better and better. And that's one of the ways computer modeling, I think, should be done. In other words, you model it, you use the computer to make a prediction, and then you keep updating it to make it better and better. So, so that's, that's one of the areas I would think we should be looking at. Another one, here in California, we're potentially facing water shortages. About a dozen years ago, I had a trip to Israel, and the people there arranged me to visit, uh, for me to visit a water desalination plant in Ashkelon, Israel. And I got to talk to the engineers and find out more about it. I understand that Israel generates something like 40% of their fresh water from desalination. They desalinate water from the Mediterranean Sea, which is something supposedly 10% saltier than the oceans. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we have the San Francisco Bay, which is supposedly 20% less salty than the ocean. So the less salty it is, the easier it should be to desalinate it. 
But the price I pay where I live in Los Altos Hills starts at about $5 for 100 cubic feet. That's what the city or local water supply companies charges me. A little louder, a little louder. The price I was quoted in Israel uh, 12 years ago was something about $1.50 a 100 cubic feet. I understand it's about half of that today. Our local communities, and I believe, by the way, there are ways to even do it better than the way they do it. They use reverse osmosis in Israel. I think there may be other ways to do desalination. And I would think maybe our university should be studying, you know, what is the most optimal way to do desalination? Because if we could do that, wouldn't it be nice if instead of getting a nasty letter from the water company saying you're using too much water, They'd be writing, gee, wouldn't your property look better with a bigger lawn? In other words, so they'd be selling us more water, and maybe they could even reduce our property taxes so that they would make it up on sales of water. <laughs> well, well, let's be honest. Reduce taxes? <laughs> Ted, you're a comedian here. <laughs> but anyway, that's, but that is an area. And... The problem is you talk to local politicians and they're pretty much deaf to the, the concepts. So that, that is, that's an area of, of concern. And, uh, but another one, fossil fuels. And this is another area that I've had an interest in. As a senior in high school, I did a science project in what was then called the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. I wasn't anticipating climate change, but I was anticipating the idea that we're pulling fossil fuels out of the ground, which are great ways to carry energy around. But it took a millions, millions and millions of years for them to get there, and we're using them all up in a few hundred years. What do we do when we've used them all up? So the idea is, let's figure out how to collect the carbon dioxide they produce from the atmosphere and react it with hydrogen, which we can get from electrolyzing water, and make our own fossil fuel substitutes. That won me a trip to Washington in the science talent search, but I think it's more relevant today than it was then. <laughs> Wait, would that does that technology work? And why wouldn't it be used? Well, it's because people, there, some people I have read have figured out how to make methanol and ethanol and other they're not, the, not as good as some fossil fuels, but I believe where it is. In Brazil, I'm told that most of their um, automobiles are running on alcohol. And that's another thing. I, I don't, you know, from what little chemistry I still remember, cellulose is like polymerized glucose. Now, glucose is a sugar that you can use to make alcohol. All you need is yeast. <laughs> Isn't there a way? Think of all the sawdust. And in fact, it's my fantasy is that you've got this reactor in your yard and you mow your lawn and you put the grass clippings in the reactor and then out of it comes the alcohol that you run your automobile on. <laughs> ah, you got the full cycle there. <laughs> right. Ted, with that, we're coming up on time. I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. I want to thank Mike and everyone at the Intel Alumni Network for putting this, this podcast together. 
And for our audience out there, if you're listening to this, please give us a great review on iTunes and any other platform that you're listening to on. It encourages us to create more content. And for our audience out there, if you're looking for a mid-market investment banker, my name is Sean Flynn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's my focus, mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. And with that, Ted, I got to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's been fun. It really has. And it, it's always fun to revisit these old times and realize that so many of these experiences are relevant. You know, they continue to be. And I would hope, especially among young people, get interested in technology. It's tremendous fun, and you could be helping to save the planet. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.